Welcome to Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Well, Sharon, we are on the air. Okay, and today is, is a different name for our show. Today is totally different. Yes. So today is Maestro and Friends, and uh, we have been fortunate enough to have Maestro Michael Hall from the Prince George Symphony Orchestra agree to come on once a month uh, to talk about music, about orchestras, about uh, musical instruments, and uh, to help us to understand what it is to be a conductor, what it takes to make an orchestra, who invented the first violin, and uh, many other interesting things that we don't know. At least I don't know. This is for me. This show's for me. <laughs> so I want to welcome Maestro Michael uh, Shaw to the sh- uh, hall. Oh. Sorry. Um, uh, to the show. And this is your show now, Michael. I am going to learn, listen, and maybe interrupt you once in a while with a um, 120, 140. Judy will, um, and you will agree to take a break, and I'm going to maybe ask you a question now and then. I That's, <laughs> yes, I would love that. Uh, before I begin, was I hearing correctly eight degrees at the end of the week? Boy, that's good. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, today it's rain, and then it's snow, and then it's rain, and then it's snow. But that's March. Yep. Typical, I tell you. Well, I'm sorry I'm not in studio. And, and you know, first I want to say uh, how appreciative I am of this time. You know, it's I want to tell our listeners how this all sort of came about because... Mm-hmm. You know, you were interviewing me and our general manager, Teresa Saunders, I think it was in February, like a month or so ago, and we were talking about our live stream concerts that were coming up, and that was great. You know, we talked about that. And then I remember, I think it was you even called me or, Mm -hmm. or mentioned that, well, what if we did something a little more, a little longer, a little more uh, regular? And so we were talking about maybe once a month on your program, doing mm-hmm. uh, talking about, as you say, musical things. Mm-hmm. Uh, instruments of the orchestra was, you know, maybe where we'll begin. Mm-hmm. You're right. There's lots of uh, things to talk about conducting. My goodness, I could talk for maybe five hours on that. <laughs> uh, so much to it, and, and that's for another time. But, I'm uh, again, I'm, I'm very appreciative that you've given me your hour uh, once a month, and I look forward to thinking about different topics and, and sort of figuring out how we want to do this. But there's, it's great. There's lots to talk about, and so I'm, I'm very, very excited to get started. Oh, and I am too. And Allison just walked in, and so um, she'll put a headphone on and listen in, and, uh, and then she'll know when uh, you want her to be part of the show. And so I'm just going to turn this over to you, Michael, and... and um, um, we have uh, Judy, who is a, a fiddler fan. She might ask a question here and then, and I might too. And so, uh, please uh, take over the show. Great, thank you, Sharon. Uh, I know Sharon mentioned that uh, we are starting this new series, Maestro and Friends, and today we're going to talk all about the violin. And later in the hour, we're going to welcome in our acting principal, second violin. Uh, Allison Bell, and she has her instrument with her, 
So it's, it, it'll be, I hope, interesting uh, in, in my part of the show when I talk a little bit about the history of the violin and, and many other things. And then in the second part of the show, Allison will be able to demonstrate uh, some uh, uh, violin techniques and other things to do with the violin. So it's not just me John on. It'll also, we'll have a little bit of musical examples, and Allison will maybe hope, hopefully make us understand a little more about how the violin works. So it's nice to have Allison with us in the second half hour and, uh, and be able to listen to a few live examples of the violin. Mm-hmm. Now, Allison missed some of that, but that's okay. She just got the headphones on and, uh, um, and is trying to get herself comfortable here. So that No problem. There's, just, we have a little bit of time. And, yeah. and I'm going to talk now a little bit about uh, just the violin, uh, uh, how, it's, how it's shaped, what it's made of, uh, talk a little bit about that. And then we'll discuss a little bit of the history of the violin, where it came from. Mm-hmm how it developed, mm-hmm. and, and we'll talk about some important people along the way, uh, like Stradivarius, the great violin maker yes. from Italy, mm-hmm. or Paganini, the great violin virtuoso from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we'll talk about some other things as well, and then, as I mentioned, Allison will play a few notes for us, and we can all have a little discussion uh, with the violin uh, right there. Wonderful. Wonderbar. <laughs> and so we will uh, carry on until one twenty. Great. So, Sounds wonderful. Okay. The, the violin is the highest member of a family of instruments that also include the viola, the cello, and the bass. And the violin has been at the heart of Western classical music since the 17th century with a repertoire that is vast and rich in masterpieces. The violin is probably the best known and most widely distributed musical instrument in the world. Wow. Let me talk a little bit about what the violin, the parts of the violin. Let's start at the very top and we'll work our way down. At the very top of the violin, attached to the very top of the neck, is the scroll. And it's named the scroll because it's typically carved in a spiral shape. If you ever look at a violin up close, you'll see this scroll at the very top of the violin. Sometimes it can even be in the shape of an animal head. Oh. Uh, really common, or not common, but more common in the larger instruments, the cello, the bass. But you, ha- you can see it on violins as well. Now, this is primarily decorative. Mm-hmm. This doesn't affect the sound at all of the instrument. So just beneath the scroll, as we begin to look downward on the violin leading to the neck, is what we call the peg box. Mm-hmm. On the peg box are the tuning pegs, and that's where the strings are attached. So because there are four strings, there are four tuning pegs. Mm-hmm. And when you turn the pegs, you can either tighten or loosen the strings, and that, of course, changes the pitch of the strings, mm-hmm. and that's how you control the pitch. And we'll, when Allison can demonstrate that in a little bit, exactly what that sounds like and, and what she does. The neck, working our way downward, is a long wooden piece attached to the body of the violin and plays a major role in supporting the strings because the strings have quite a bit of tension on the instrument. So the the neck is what holds a lot of that tension. And now glued to the neck uh, is what we call the fingerboard. And this is a typically smooth surface that has been painted black most often, Mm -hmm. and it sits beneath the strings. 
And the fingerboard is used to change the pitch of the instrument when you press down on the strings on its surface. That's how you change the notes of a violin, on the fingerboard. Now, the body, continuing down, the body of the violin is the largest part of the violin. It's the characteristic appearance of the violin, is what we call the body. Mm-hmm. But it also determines primarily the sound quality of the instrument, because it's the instrument's resonator, or what we call the sound box. So it consists of a belly, that's the top plate, mm-hmm. bottom, which is the back plate, and on the body is a very distinctive sound holes, and we call them F holes because they look like a decorative F. Now, these holes allow the violin to resonate more freely. The air can get in and out of these F holes. So the strings run all the way down the instrument from the peg box we talked about at the top to the tailpiece, what is called the tailpiece at the bottom of the instrument. Mm-hmm. Now, in the middle of the instrument, the strings pass over what is called a bridge. Mm-hmm. That transmits the string's vibrations to the sound box, which amplifies the sound. And inside the instrument, if you could actually look inside it, beneath that bridge, right in the middle of the instrument, wedged between the front and the back, the belly and the back, is what we call the sound post. And that's a little round post that transmits the string vibrations to the instrument's back, which contributes to the resonance of the instrument, and as well as supporting the string tension. We talk again about the tension of the strings being supported by the instrument. Mm-hmm. So uh, the only other part that's kind of a later invention is what we call the chin rest. Oh, yes. Which the musicians support the violin with their chin while playing. Now, Michael, why uh, aren't there frets on the... Yes, that's a great question. Now, frets are, if you can just imagine a guitar. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's, that's how you can you know, picture what a fret is. And a fret sort of allows you in in a in an easier way to find the notes. Yeah. Now, there were a class of instruments way back um the, uh, what we call the viola da gamba, mm-hmm. which is, which resembles a modern cello. It was played gamba meaning leg, so it was played against a leg. Mm-hmm. Now, that that class of instruments had um a fret. But the violin from its earliest days never developed a, a, any frets. Um, it does make it, in a way, a little more difficult to find the notes because, as I mentioned, the fret kind of gives you a guidepost yes. to find the note you're looking for when you press down on the string. Yeah. But it does give you a lot of freedom yes. uh, because there are no frets. Uh, but it's an interesting, you're very right, it's an interesting fact that the violin, from its earliest days, never developed frets. It was always other instruments, guitar, lute. Uh, other other string instruments, but not the violin. Yeah, and and for me, it, when I see someone playing the violin, I think it must be so difficult because I've played instruments with frets, yeah. so I know where I am on the keyboard. I know, you know, uh, but on the violin, I mean, you're going to have to have a love affair with that instrument because it's going to be you and the instrument. There's nobody going to guide you. You know, it's very, very true, Sharon, and, um, and, but like the guitar and like any string instrument, it really is a matter, uh, part of it is a matter of muscle memory. Yes. You get used to playing, let's say, an A above the staff, let's just say, and that, that note will sound at a certain position on the fingerboard where you put your finger down on the string. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, in very quick succession sometimes, recall where to put your finger down. Mm-hmm. And you're right, the frets, there's no frets, so that you don't, you don't have that kind of guidepost, but the principle is exactly the same. You mm-hmm. have to remember 
uh, with muscle memory, and we can even ask Allison. There, there is other, of course, uh, things that go into it. But that's the idea. You, you, you learn where to put your fingers down for certain notes. So, um, Allison, how how did you learn that? Because for me, when I started learning C D E on the piano, I wrote it in pencil. And if I was going to play the violin, I would be writing it in, in nail polish or something. <laughs> well, um, I, I think like what, what Michael said, it's a matter. It's a matter of just putting in the practice. Uh-huh. Um, everybody plays some out of tune notes when they're when they're learning, and it's a matter of just narrowing that parameter of what you consider to be an in tune note until you really have a very close idea of what is acceptable. Yeah. Well, it's just it amazes me. Yeah, because it is amazing. It's, yeah, it really is. I'd be writing all over that thing. And it's a, it's a different <laughs> skill, as you say, than let's say the piano, of course, where yeah. where everything is right there, and you can't, you know, if you press the right yes. note, you're going to get the right sound. That's right. right. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, it's a little bit different. Never mind the fact about the the right hand and what it has to do. Mm-hmm. And and the violin really requires two distinct techniques performed by the player's two hands. The left hand, as we've been talking about, is used for producing specific pitches by pressing down on the strings, on mm-hmm. the various places on the fingerboard. Mm-hmm. This is called stopping. You're stopping the string. Mm-hmm. The right hand is used to vibrate the strings, mm-hmm. which is usually done by gliding the bow across them. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk a bit about the bow, a very interesting part of the violin. Um, the bow is a tension stick which has horsehair. That's right, horsehair. Put in rosin to facilitate the friction between the bow and the string. And horsehair is used because it's very strong and very durable, Mm -hmm. really perfectly able to make the strings vibrate at the the correct frequency. Bow hair now can be made with synthetic materials, of course, but even to this day, Almost every bow, every bow that I've you know uh, I've known and experienced and talked to violin players is made out of horsehair. That is still the desired medium of the bow. So that means that every violinist needs to own a horse. I remember getting uh, many years ago when we were talking about this subject, and they said, "Oh my goodness, you know, does does the horse have to die?" <laughs> no, <laughs> you just brush out the tail. <laughs> That's really interesting. I didn't realize it was horsehair. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, of course, they remove it, you know, the, the horses. Even when they when the horse is alive sometimes, and, and they really do have horses, uh, you know, among other purposes for this. But it's funny how it's still horsehair. People yes. Very interesting, and I do too, to be honest with you, how, yeah. how it's still really the case so many hundreds of years later. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, the other interesting thing I want to mention is, uh, along that is the strings, which have a very interesting history. There are four strings mm-hmm. on the violin. That uh, surprised me. I don't know why I thought there was more strings, but four would be enough. <laughs> well, that's right. And in an older instrument, certainly, um, as the instrument developed, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, um, mm-hmm. it sometimes would have five strings, six strings. Sometimes instruments like the violin, not the violin itself as we know it, but like mm-hmm. the violin, would have more strings and even strings that uh, produced a drone. So it would be, think oh. of bagpipes, for example. Yeah. There's this drone, this one note that plays all the way through, and over that you play your melody. Um, and so even, even uh, stringed instruments uh, and what we call viola de braccia, 
which it just means by, you know, we talked about the viola da gamba, which mm-hmm. is your leg, viola da braccia is your arm, and so this class of instruments developing into the violin were, would be played like a violin, but they'd have all sorts of different number of strings sometimes, and other changes that mm-hmm. we don't have anymore. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting, too, is that what the strings are made of. Mm-hmm. In the early days, and, and can be done even today, but, but exclusively, uh, the material uh, was made out the strings were made out of the intestines of sheep. Uh, and, you know. Honey, and this material is often known as cat gut, yes. but that's not quite right. It's a, a bit of a misnomer. There's no cats were ever harmed in the production of violin strings. It's just called cat gut, but really it's made from sheep intestines. Mm-hmm. And once it's stretched and dried and twisted, the gut strings actually create very rich, resonant tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always think of this Shakespeare quote, which I absolutely love, uh, when he says, it, it, is, is it not strange that sheep's guts should hail souls out of men's bodies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sheep's guts is right. <laughs> yeah, well, do they still use sheep gut? You, well, you can. Uh, no, primarily not. And mm-hmm. again, uh, we can talk with Allison a bit about this, but primarily not. Uh, in, even in the 17th century now, so quite a few years back, the practice began of winding the lowest string, and that's the G string, uh, with a thread of silver wire to give it more powerful sound. So today, that, that has continued. So a modern strings are mostly a synthetic core mm-hmm. of some sort of synthetic and, and wound with various metals. Mm-hmm. They really have more of a metallic uh, substance of the strings than, uh, than intestines. Yeah, part of the reason is that it makes for a more powerful sound, a louder sound, uh, which for today's orchestras, everything is getting louder in orchestras as the years have gone by, so it really has made it a little more of a powerful instrument. But to answer your question, Sharon, about do people use catgut, they do, especially if they want to reproduce uh, music from, let's say, the 1700s, mm-hmm. where if you wanted to hear exactly maybe how Mozart's symphony would have sounded to Mozart, yep. you could not use metal strings on your violin. That's not what he had. And so the, the, the difference in sound is, is um, uh, substantial. And so you might use catgut if you wanted to replicate uh, the sound of, of an orchestra of that time, for example, and, and other reasons, too. But no, mainly you're going to have steel strings uh, these days. Mm-hmm. And um, I was thinking about fingers, like how much does it hurt your fingers when you have to do the stop thing? Ah, that's a great question. Allison, that's a great question. Um, it's not that bad, and largely because um, over time we build up calluses on okay. our fingers. So yeah. if you touch the ends of my fingers, they're a little bit a little bit harder than on my right hand. Mm-hmm. And um, the more time you put in, the the tougher your fingers get. And the only time you would really notice is if you had a really heavy performing schedule and you were playing for six or seven hours a day, and then you'd get sore. And so for your um, the the wand for the. But, the Hmm? The bow. The bow. Do you prefer Palomino horse hair? Or <laughs> <laughs> I have no preference to a oh, horse, horse type. <laughs> I just had to ask. <laughs> sure. Um, and so uh, that is something because it, I think that w- 
that steel string would hurt. And, um, I mean, yeah, it's again, you don't you don't really notice it. I think um, if you went from doing nothing to doing a couple hours a day, yeah, then you would yeah. you would get sore and you'd probably get some blistering. And and when I watch people playing, they're so graceful and it doesn't look like they have any pain. And and uh, and yet, I mean, a violin being played is very beautiful. It's it's very artistic. It's ballet or something. Yeah. 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 It really is. There's a real physical thing. And, and you know, we talk about calluses on your fingers. Uh, this is especially true for bass players mm-hmm. because you can imagine oh. everything is bigger. The instrument's bigger. The strings are thicker by a fair bit. And so it's really the case with bass players that I've talked to that have gone back to playing. Maybe they haven't played in a while or whatever. Uh, that takes a little bit of time to get your yeah. fingers used to those strings. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, that's all very interesting. I thought... I. I think those are things that people just accept and and for me because I have played instruments I know how you know sore my fingers get at the beginning yeah you know? and so I just wanted to ask that question thank you Allison And so um we need to take a break um are you with us Yes I sure am Yeah so are we taking a break madam Yeah We're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Maestro and Friends in just a minute. There isn't much that a country singer hasn't covered in a song. If you want to hear songs about new love, lost love, drinking, fighting, cowboys, trains, traveling, and everything else, then tune into the Country Cavalcade every Wednesday, 6 to 8, where I cover music from the 20s to the 90s, as well as today's traditional independent artists. You'll hear from such greats as the Carter family, Johnny Horton, Vern Charlton, and so much more. The Country Cavalcade, Wednesday, 6 to 8, only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM with me, Corey Walker. Hope for Women is looking to hire a unique, outgoing, and knowledgeable individual to educate BC middle and secondary students through its Sexual Health and Intimacy for Teens program. SHIFT is a series of sex-positive, pro-abstinence presentations based on the BC learning outcomes. This full-time position is expected to start in April. For full details, email shift at hopeforwomen.ca. That's Hope for Women Pregnancy Services, looking for a shift coordinator to start in April. Application deadline is April 15th. Kickstart your spring with Fit Nation. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council is pleased to present a five-part workout series brought to the comfort of your own home. Fit Nation leaders will guide you through each workout, providing options for each exercise in introductory, intermediate and advanced movements. Take on the 30-minute videos one at a time or tackle them 10 minutes at a time. The five-part Fit Nation workout series. Find it on YouTube on the iSpark Fit Nation channel. Forecast from Environment Canada for today. Snow at times mixed with rain. Wind from the south at 20k gusting to 60, a high of 4. Tonight periods of rain. Gusting south winds continuing a low of 2. On Wednesday mainly cloudy, the 40% chance of showers and a high of 5. You're listening to Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Brought to you in part by Riverbend Seniors Community. When you live at Riverbend, you will feel right at home. Okay, we're back on. Okay, we're back with Maestro and friends, and the friend today is Allison, and Maestro is Maestro Michael Hall. I don't know why I want to say Shaw, but anyway, <laughs> it's Michael Hall. So, welcome back, Michael. We were talking about uh, fingers and wires and all of those kind of things, which I hope that you don't mind when I ask these things. Um, and so now where are we at? We're at the four strings, I guess. 
Is there Michael? Michael? We lose Michael. Uh, where is Michael? Did we lose Michael? Yes. Oh no, Michael! If you can hear us, can you phone back in? So, I can't hear anything. Are we on even on the air? Okay. So, while we're waiting for Michael, um, I'm going to talk to Allison. Hello. Oh, that's what happened. Okay. I can't hear him. Put you back up again. His phone died. Oh, dear. I am back. My phone. That's uh, that's the uh, reality of not being in studio. But I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, And, Michael, I think we were talking about um, four strings. Four strings, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, And the... Strings are G, D, A, and E, and, and those are what we call the open strings. So if you don't stop them, as we've been discussing, by putting your left hand fingers on the strings, you get these open strings, which sound G, D, A, and E. You know, if I don't know whether Allison has her violin out and ready, this might be a nice time just to have her tune her violin and, and maybe just talk a, a little bit. There's probably not much to talk about as far as what, how you approach that, but, uh, you know, maybe just might be nice to to go through that process, which they do every time they play, yeah, whether it's solo or orchestral or any other reason. Okay, she's here. Here's so, week. Normally we uh, start with our A string, which is the second one from the top. So that's that's the pitch. Sounds pretty good. So then mm-hmm. we tune going down. string the E at the top and um, you just develop a sense for uh, when they res- when they're uh, when they're in tune they don't uh, they don't feel like they're fighting and you you don't hear that uh, wow that you <laughs> get from an out of tune uh, note combination well because my musical instrument is the ukulele it seems to me those are the same keys or yeah. notes that you yeah. so if I took a bow and played it again on the ukulele, well, I wonder what would happen. <laughs> I've never tried. Uh, give it a try. Why not? <laughs> well, you know, um, but I, that's this is just so amazing to me that the, uh, that cute little ukulele that is more or less considered a, a kid's toy has the same notes as a fantastic violin. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, though? Yeah. That's right. You're, you're, not every string instrument is tuned the same, of course. When we talk about the other string instruments in other times, we'll talk about their open strings. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes not only the notes different, but the intervals between the notes, the open strings are different. Uh, so there is quite a, a variation on that. But mm-hmm. the violin, as you say, are, are open fifth. And you can even hear how tuning, turning the peg, which is what Allison was doing, mm-hmm. that you hear it sort of go down and up and you're, you know, you're just, and there's also even a fine tuning um, as you might see uh, at the, the below the bridge, which allows you even finer tuning than the big pegs up top, mm-hmm. uh, which is also used. Um, let me talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about just a little bit of the history, which is such an yes. interesting history of the violin, mm-hmm. because it, it's been around for a long time and really hasn't changed particularly much in about 500 years. 
Wow. So in the very early days, we had certainly bowed string instruments made in the ancient world, and they came to Europe via the early medieval trade routes. And this led to the evolution of the first European bowed instruments. And one of the earliest European ancestors of the violin is what we call the viel. And this is from the medieval period. And now, you talked about strings. This instrument had up to five strings mm -hmm. on an oval body with two crescent-shaped slits. These were the sound holes we were talking about. Right. And I do actually have an, a little quick example of someone playing the VL that I want you to listen to see how it's quite the same, but also quite different than the modern violin. Mm-hmm. That sounds Irish. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It sounds like a fiddle, I thought, when yes. I first heard that. It's got a fiddle sort of quality to it. But you, again, you can see how this is beginning to sound like the modern violin. This was very popular, this instrument in the Renaissance. The, the troubadours would mm -hmm. sing as they played. You could just imagine this, this, this characteristic sound of the time. Mm -hmm. Now, in the 16th century, we moved to Italy. The Venice, Milan, Cremona, these were the centers of string instrument manufacture in the 16th century. And this is really where the violin evolved. Between about 1520 and 1550, so long ago, and one of the earliest uh, manufacturers is a fellow by the name of Andrea Amati. Mm -hmm. He lived in Cremona, and he made the oldest surviving violins. These uh, violins that he made in the 1550s are still around. Uh, and he's really credited, if anyone invented the violin, which isn't really a, a, a true statement, because mm -hmm. he's had lots of influences, but people say that he was really the one that developed what we now know of as the violin, mm -hmm. um, and, and they exist today, but nobody plays them. They're so old, they're in museums and, and, and that kind of thing, but they really are uh, amazing. And the other thing that I think is interesting about the history of the violin is that they were not just the high-pitched instruments that we call the violin today. They were made in a range of sizes and pitches. Mm. So a violin is not just a violin like we know it. They actually were different sizes, they played different parts, um, one of the earliest violin ensembles, this is now 1626, we're, mm -hmm. we're still many, many years ago, mm -hmm. was the French king Louis the Thirteenth, right. And he had one of the very first orchestras in Europe, and it was called the Vingt Quatre Violons du Roi. <laughs> it was 24 violins, and so there was 24 violins, five different sizes, all the way from the top to the bottom. So you could have a full range of, of pitches with all these different violins. Um, and as we talk about makers, one of the greatest uh, instrument makers of the violin and other instruments as well, but primarily known for the violin uh, maker, is Stradivari, Antonio Stradivari. And his instruments are really considered being close to perfection. Uh, his violins are prized for their elegance, their craftsmanship, and the beauty of their sound. They are very much sought after by collectors and performers alike, and, and every, nearly every top violinist owns or wishes to own what we call a Strad. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Stradivari was born in 1644 in Cremona in northern Italy, and he was always looking for ways to improve the look and the sound of the instrument. So the period between, let's say, 1700 to 1720 is regarded by most experts as Stradivari's golden age mm-hmm. as a maker, when he produced his finest and most famous instruments. And it's amazing to think that about 600 of, of um, Stradivarius's violins survive. Wow. And many are owned by the top soloists are of today. And Sophie Mutter, the great violinist, plays uh, what we call the Lord Dunraven. It was made way back in 1710. Wow. Uh, it's like has a Strad called the Soli oh, wow. from 1714. And these sort of nicknames that I'm saying, the Lord Dunraven, the Gibson, the Soli, mm-hmm. these refer to early owners of these Stradivarius. Of violins, and of course, they fetch a very high price at auction. In 2011, the Lady Blunt mm-hmm. uh, Strad was auctioned off for 15.9 million dollars. Good lord! Uh, and and the thing that's made people from that day to this very interested is what makes a Stradivarius so special. Yes, and no one knows for sure. Some think it's the varnish. Yeah. Some think it's the wood that's the key. I mean, there's talk about there was, you know, was there a mini ice age during the 1680s that slowed the growth of the trees, giving them a very kind of unique density? Is it the microorganisms soaked up by the trees as they were transported down the river? You just, nobody knows. And we've tried to manufacture and use all our scientific knowledge to figure out what makes a Stradivarius a Stradivarius, but no one knows. But all we do know that these are incredible instruments and as I say played by soloists today um, and, um, and, and you know I know we've even had I, if I'm not mistaken some soloists at the PGSO who have come in to play who have played on instruments if not a Stradivarius of a quality of that type of an age of that type 300 years old let's wow. say yeah. Uh, so it's re- these instruments are really quite remarkable. Is there uh, special, sure. um, Michael? Is there special kind of wood that they use uh, for? Well, uh, you, well, that that's one of the theories. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it could have been the wood that yep. grew in in northern Italy at that time. So mm-hmm. not just the wood that is native there today, but mm-hmm. wood that was native there at that time. Because mm-hmm. again, right. it was a small, relatively short window yeah. that these incredible instruments were produced in yeah. that now, as I said, with the great solos of the world play. Yeah, you that's know, very intriguing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And so, Allison, um, it's uh, it's one thirty-five. So, Michael, did you want Allison to play or... Sure, sure. Yes, I mean, you know, we, we, we want to talk a little bit about just, um, you know, I'd love to chat with Allison a bit about her experiences with not only, um, you know, her, the violin and, and when she learned and, and what drew her to the violin, but maybe even talk a little bit about the violin that she owns, speaking mm-hmm. of, of violin makers, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Allison. So, um, should we... Do you want to talk about the violin first? Or? Sure. Okay, sure. since we were talking about that. So um, my violin is uh, a French violin. It was made in 1910. I'm holding it up right now as if people can see it. I know they can't see it. Um, but I can see it. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was made by a guy named Paul Cole. And um, he actually wrote, he literally wrote the vi- book on violin making. He, um, it's, it's, most mo- modern violins are either a model of a Stradivarius or a Garnier. 
Quaternarius, and this, these ones Paul Coles are uh, Strad model. Um, and he's, it's considered a, a good, uh, a very nice example of a modern violin. Um, this particular violin has an uh, interesting history. It used to belong to um, the former violin professor at Brandon University, Francis Chaplin. And um, so I grew up actually hearing this violin being played uh, sometimes. And mm-hmm. um, uh, there was a tragic house fire when um, in the in the 90s, and um, he actually died in that fire. But this oh. violin, yeah, uh, it was a huge loss to the to the music community. Um, and uh, but the violin was restorable. It mm-hmm. was badly damaged, but it was restored by Claire Givens in uh, North Dakota. And mm-hmm. um, I was privileged to be able to. Um, acquire it uh later on i wonder if his spirit's in there well that's that's one thing people say with violins is um that you can you can pick up something of the the way that it's been played in the past and i definitely um i know that uh how much and how how well like if i if i haven't been using the violin well the sound will become tighter and and less less full and it will diminish in quality so it's important if i don't feel like practicing i tell myself do it for the violin if you don't feel like doing it for yourself mm-hmm. well i i that's what i said you must have to have a love affair with the, that violin so that you like you say your muscle memory yeah. and you and it are like have to be almost one well the the more you play your violin the more you find that it, it can do yes and then of course your skills also, yeah, you know, it, it's both things uh, sort of improve in tandem, and um, you know, it's also uh, it's humbling also to to realize that you know this this violin was made 110 years ago. So many people have owned it before me, and people will own it after me, and hopefully that I should be improving it for the next person. That's fascinating. It's always amazing to think about the pedigree. Of, of fine instruments, whether it's a violin or other instruments, but the violin always seems to me always has a story behind it. Mm-hmm. These great mm-hmm. violins doesn't mean that great violins aren't being made even closer to the present day, uh, but you know there really is something about a violin that's lived for a while. As Allison says, you know it's been played by different people. It's just sort of existed <laughs> for a certain number of years that really makes it something special. Mm-hmm. The um, I wanted to move now a little bit into the Baroque era, which is really where the violin dominated. This is when we really heard a lot of fantastic violin music that we play to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the great composers of the Baroque period, especially Bach. And I'd like to play uh, a little bit of one of Bach's extraordinary sonatas uh, for unaccompanied violin. Now, these are works that, that I'm sure Allison will say that Many, uh, uh, you know, many violins play, many violinists learn, uh, when, when they're young. These are very difficult, of course, but so beautiful. And there's something extraordinarily modern, I think, about the way that Bach wrote these sonatas, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago. So I'm, I'm we're just going to play the very beginning of the first movement of Bach's sonata number one in G minor. Mm-hmm.
that's just beautiful. Isn't it, though? Yeah. Michael, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back and talk about this. Sounds good. Share your love for Prince George and Northern BC to be eligible for great prizes in the Share Your Love for BC contest. You could win $500 in gift cards and vouchers from Destination BC to spend at local businesses. See contest rules or enter at shareyourloveforbc.com. Submit a photo and your story, and you could be one of 10 lucky winners from across the province. Share your love for Prince George and Northern BC at shareyourloveforbc.com today. Contest closes Friday. The Rotary Hospice House is in need of knitted slippers for guests. Any knitters willing and able to knit and donate slippers can call Irene at 250-563-2551 for full details. Once again, the Prince George Hospice Society's Rotary Hospice House needs knitted slippers for their guests. More information is available by calling Irene at 250-563-2551. The Everybody Moves Resource Hub is now online. Created by the BC Alliance for Healthy Living and the Physical Activity Health Collaborative, the Hub is a one-stop shop for sport and recreational leaders who want to ensure physical activity is as inclusive and accessible as possible. BC clearly needs solutions to get us all active, and the Everybody Moves Resource Hub is part of the answer. Find it at everybodymoveshub.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada for today's snow at times mixed with rain. Wind from the south at 20k gusting to 60, a high of 4. Tonight periods of rain, gusting south winds continuing a low of 2. On Wednesday mainly cloudy, the 40% chance of showers and a high of 5. Brought to you in part by Riverbend Manor. You're listening to Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS FM. Okay, we are back on with Michael, with Maestro and friends, and that was beautiful, really beautiful. And when we were off the air, I was just talking to Allison about how that sound can make you cry. Mm-hmm. It's just like a voice, isn't it, though? Mm-hmm. I always find it very much, and, and this is what, at least in orchestral, and I assume solo playing too, we talk a lot uh, about the singing quality of the violin. I mean, unlike the piano, which... You play the note, then it immediately decays. There's yeah. nothing you can do about it. It decays, and that's how the instrument works. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with a string instrument, it, with with proper use of the bow, um, it just sings. And, and that's what's so beautiful about the instrument. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like more than one person playing to me. You know, I really listened. I closed my eyes, and I really just felt it. And, and Alice and I were talking about how that is made by uh, playing... The, well, you you know how it's made. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know you can you can even do a quick example. I mean, it, it's, you're very right, Sharon, and it's a matter of playing different strings at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, also breaking them up. But it's but you know sometimes you think well, violin one string one note. Yeah. But no, not at all. Yeah. yeah. So um, we can we can play if this is one string. But we can we can cover more than one string with a finger, and then we can change the different strings at different times. So, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. See, that's it. That's when I, it sounds like there's more than one person playing the violin yeah right right exactly mm-hmm. 
Um, and now, so we talked about the Baroque period where the violin really came into its own. Great, great music by Bach and other composers like Vivaldi, for example, as well. But then, as we move into the nineteenth uh, century, or into the Romantic era, and this is where the violin, as a concerto instrument, comes into its own. And mm-hmm. this is again how we sort of know it uh, if we're talking about orchestral music. But certainly, solo uh, pieces were being written and sung with incredible difficulty. And that brings me to this wonderfully interesting character in the history of violins, and that is Niccolo Paganini, who was born in 1782. And many consider him, even to this day, the greatest violinist of all time. Um, The ferocity with which he played, and coupled with his elongated fingers, (laughs) and extraordinary flexibility gave him this kind of mysterious almost mythical reputation. He was like a rock star of the time. He was mobbed in the streets, and his talent was so beyond his peers that people started to believe that he made a pact with the devil. And another very interesting, we talked a little bit, uh, um, Alton did, about the the, uh, identity almost of previous violin players and owners of that violin. You can kind of, in a way, in the ether, know how they played or, or get a sense of who they were. Yeah. Another really outrageous, uh, I mean, I guess Paganini had a great PR guy because um, <laughs> another uh, rumor that went around was that he had murdered a woman and used her intestines as violin strings and imprisoned her soul within the instrument. Oh my gosh. Um, but one thing for sure, his skill was unparalleled and he was one of the first to play by memory and not using music at all. Now, to, to us, that doesn't seem particularly surprising because when you see a violin concerto with the PGSO, almost always the violinist does not have music. It's all in their head. Mm-hmm. But Peggy was one of the first to do this, so he was a real showman. And I'd like to play a little bit, or at least to have Reg play, um, one of his 24 caprices. These are fiendishly difficult pieces for solo violin to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, we can play, this is example four now, we can play the very first one of his caprices, and this one's an E minor.
My goodness. <laughs> They're not beginner pieces, are they? <laughs> oh, wow. And part of that sounded like laughter. Yes, yes. Well, and you know, it, it, uh, as we finish our hour, I think might might be interesting is, is uh, talking a little bit about at least some of the different articulations. And, you know, let me start that discussion a bit by talking about the modern symphony orchestra now and, mm-hmm. and the role of the violin in the modern symphony orchestra. Um, there are really two violin sections. There's a first violin section and a second violin section, and these play separate parts. And each section usually plays in unison, although composers may divide the violins into more parts, but usually you have a violin one that plays the same notes and a violin two section that plays the same notes. Uh, Now, the musical functions vary, of course, but traditionally the first carry the melody and the seconds play the supportive harmony. And uh, the position, how they're seated on the stage can also vary. Most nowadays, this is not exclusive, but you'll see this in the PGSO, certainly, we usually see the first and the second sitting side by side on the left-hand side of the stage as you look from the audience. Mm-hmm. So the two sections are really sitting side by side. But in the 18th century, the two sections, violin one and violin two, would be placed on opposite sides of the stage. Mm-hmm. And this was due primarily to the way the pieces were composed, because you would get this almost stereophonic result of the sections being separated on each side of the stage. So really, it's up to the musical decisions, the conductor that will decide, uh, and other reasons, to decide how to seat the first and second violins. Mm -hmm. Uh, The principal first violin is known as the concertmaster, and he or she will lead the tuning. You often see them coming in at the beginning of the concert. They will take the A from the oboe and and just, in a way, lead the orchestra in, in tuning. Um, they'll play any violin solos that occur in the orchestral pieces and any decisions about um, bowings. Mm-hmm. And that opens up a little bit of a, another subject that I find very interesting with the violin. We talk about bowings. What's a bowing? And how do you mm-hmm. decide what a bowing should be or is? Now, when I say bowing, there's two types only. There's down and there's up. And an up bow pulls the bow up towards the shoulder, so the bow goes up, and a down bow is quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. You, you push the bow down away from the shoulder. Now, these are indicated by different marks above each note in the music. Mm-hmm. So a different uh, uh, marking will indicate to the violinist whether that note should be played up bow or should be played down bow. And again, you might think, well, who cares? I mean, does it matter? Mm-hmm. Well, it sort of does, because this combination of up bow and down bow go a long way in determining the musical concept of a phrase. So in other words, different bowings, because you can do different bowings, for uh, the same musical phrase will yield different musical results. Mm-hmm. And this depends on lots of different things, where you want the stress of the phrase to be. Because in a very, very uh, uh, general sense, the down bow, it will give you a little more weight, because just by the nature of the of physicalness of it, mm-hmm. an up bow will give you a little lighter sound. Now, a violinist will learn to almost negate that. The idea is that everything should sound the same up bow and down bow, but there is this physicality that if you change them around, you'll change the nature of the musical phrase. 
Mm-hmm. But one thing is always the case. The whole section plays with the same bowing. There is not okay. a case where, uh, rarely at least, I mean, yes, there is some cases, but most often you'll see a whole violin section, whether it's one or first section or second section, playing with the same bowings. Mm-hmm. But the concertmaster, in coordination with the music director and the conductor, decides which type of bowing you want to do. Now, this leads me very much into Allison, and, and if we, in the short time we have left, uh, we can talk maybe a little bit not just about up bow and down bow, but there are different styles of strokes, as we call it, and they can fall under two main categories, on-the-string techniques and off-the-string techniques. And maybe, Allison, you know, we can, there's, a, there's a grab bag. There's many, many different uh, names, spiccato, martelet. Uh, there's all sorts of different uh, uh, terms for different ways to bow a passage of music, and as a violinist, you know all of these. As a conductor, you if you're not a violin player, you learn about them so you can be informed when you speak to your violin section as far as how you would like the phrase to sound. So I don't know, Allison, if you may just take up that a little bit and talk a little bit about these different sort of styles of bowing that, that you really have to go from one to another, you know, very quickly sometimes. Sure. Um, okay, so you were talking about bowings that are on the string, so I'll give you some examples. Um, our smoothest bowing is normally called legato, and I'll give you a little example. And uh, if we another one would be de, uh, would be detaché where we're a little bit separated separated. Um, we have the hammer stroke, which is martelet. Um, um, and then we have some of the, sep- the the ones that are a little bit more off the string. Like you heard a little bit of uh, in the Paganini, we have uh, something that's done by bouncing the string. That kind of thing. We have um, something a little bit more controlled, spizzicato. Um, so that's that's a few examples, and then there's some different things that we see more in the orchestra, which are more effect bowing effects. Um, tr- tremolo is a good example where we're right at the tip, and we have. And if you can imagine that you have uh, twenty violinists all doing that very quietly at the same time, you get a very specific mm-hmm. kind of bowing effect when you get a group of people doing this all together. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we get different effects by playing in different parts of the string. So if we're playing sultasto, it's over the fingerboard. Very different from that's right in the contact point where we would normally play. We can be over the bridge. We get a very different effect there as well. And sometimes they ask us to tap the. This is more something you see in modern music. Occasionally, we'll be asked to tap the string with the bow, the wood of the bow. Is Colenio. Mm-hmm. And of course, sometimes uh, we don't use a bow at all and actually pluck the string. That's mm-hmm. a good point. So we can pluck mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. our 
with our Boeing hand. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing is that, so, so again, for our listeners who will come to a concert or listen to a solo violin concert or whatever the case may be, it's amazing to think that it doesn't just happen, not only as the, as the instrument takes years to perfect, but you have this, this, this toolbox of all these different where to play on the bow, where to play on the string, how to use the bow, as Allison said, all the different stroke names. So these are all at your disposal. Mm-hmm. So the decision really is, is uh, you know, difficult in the sense that there's so many choices to make, but you, as a conductor at least, you are uh, aware of what sort of sound you would like from the string section, and as much as you can articulate that in words to them and that's why it's good to know these things even if you're not a violin player because these do uh, these are important but often you'll even ask the concert master well i'd like to do this or would you consider this and them being the experts will say okay or well you know that may not work so well here because so it really is in that sense a collaboration when you talk about the different time of strokes and allison maybe in the in again in just a few minutes a quick word on, we mentioned you were the principal second violin of the PGSO, so it's not the concertmaster, which is the principal of the first violin, but maybe take very quickly, so what the role of the principal second violin is in an orchestra. Sure. Um, so if you're, if you're one of the principals in charge of a section, then it's your uh, responsibility to make sure that everyone in your section uh, understands the bowings and uh, hopefully is using similar fingerings and uh, that they understand where they need to be uh, aware of, of what, what you're doing and um, just that, that they're prepared the way that they need to be, but also specifically as in terms of uh, leading the seconds that we're one we're really the along with the violists we're the inner voices and um so we're we're the glue of the orchestra because um as michael was mentioning earlier we often play a supporting harmonic role to the Mm -hmm. first violin section but in other places we will have uh play bits that are uh really duets with the lower strings and sometimes will be uh used as a as a supportive voice for other other uh, parts of the orchestra as well, like the woodbins. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we really need to be aware and blending yes. very consciously with the intonation because mm-hmm. when when you're in the inner voices, um, you really have a lot of control over the um, the harmonics of the overall sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We're we're at the end of the show here, Michael.